Love Storyers, welcome back to another fabulous episode. Thank you so much for listening to us, supporting us, and we can't wait to share another story with you. Morgan, do you want to intro our amazing guest for the day? I sure do. Hi, Love Storyers. Today we are talking to Yara, don't get jealous, my previous work wife, Tiffany. <laughs> Tiff and I worked together. Yes, Yara. I was going to say, don't worry. I always call myself your work husband, so I don't feel slighted in any way. So we're still good. Okay. I'm glad that we can, I can be in a relationship with both of you. Tiffany and I worked together for almost three years. And the day she started, I remember she came in, we had, I was like, oh, a new black girl starting. I will make her my friend. Tiff, I don't know if you remember that, but the first day when you came in, or maybe later after you had been there for a minute, I told you that. I so, do remember that. It's so great. So Tiff and I, our desks were probably, there was like a median divider in between, but we weren't that far from each other. And so whenever there would be drama, whether work-related or not, each of us would go and sit in the other person's cubicle for like way too long for it to be appropriate at work. And so then whenever people wouldn't be able to find one of us, they would go to the other person's desk because that was often where you'd be able to find that person. I admire all of my friends and that's why I'm friends with them is because I look up to them and I see things in them that I want to be able to replicate in myself. But Tiffany, especially in the workplace, is somebody who I've looked up to so much. She is so smart. She's so commanding, but still kind. She's a really, really good um, person to work on projects with because we worked really super closely together, which can be difficult when you're close friends with somebody, but Tiff and I never even had any like drama because we worked really well together. And she's just such a smart, amazing, talented, wonderful person. And so I feel so lucky that even though we started as work friends, we evolved into being real friends. And so Tiff, I am just so happy that you're here and I can't wait to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me, Morgan and Yara. I am so excited. Um, Long time listener, first time caller. So this is like a dream come true for me. So thank you for having me. I'm excited for our conversation. Like Tiff said, she's a long time listener, first time caller, but she definitely was one of those people who's been so incredibly supportive of us doing this podcast. So I just can't wait for now for the tables to turn and for us to interview you. So Tiff, as a long time listener, you know how we like to start. First, we want to hear who is Tiffany? Tell us about yourself. Tell us about your upbringing and bring us up to speed on what makes you who you are today. So I like to say that I'm from Virginia, but I'm of New York. I love being from Virginia Beach. So my family's in the military. So I'm a military brat, if you will. My dad was in the Navy for 25 years. He retired as a senior chief. We moved around a little bit, but settled in Virginia Beach when I was about in fourth grade. So I very much am from Virginia Beach. And I think when I think about who I am and my upbringing, I always talk about that part because I think being a military kid is such an important part of my identity. I think it's a little bit of why I'm like type A and anal because my dad was, he was in the military since he was 18. So he was all, he grew up that way and he sort of instilled those, that detail orientation in us. Um, So I definitely got that from my dad and also being around just the military family in general with um, my my mom's side of the family. Everybody was in the military. 
dad's side of the family, everybody was in the military. I'm sort of just like the one who didn't go that route. Um, but I guess we'll get into that a little later. From Virginia, and then I moved to undergrad. I went to George Mason University. It was right outside of D.C., and it's interesting because George Mason was, um, is one of the most diverse schools in Virginia, like the state of Virginia. And I think about my choice in going to Mason and it's, I didn't intentionally choose Mason because of that. There were other things that attracted me to it. But then I think about my upbringing and in Virginia Beach, it was also really diverse because it was a military town. So I just remember in high school being like a third Asian, a third black and a third white. And then going to undergrad and having that experience and then now living in New York and right still having that experience because New York is the most diverse place in the world. I just feel when I look back at just my trajectory, I feel really lucky to have had a lot of those experiences where I was exposed to various different cultures. And I do think that that's a huge part of why I've been, if I can, successful and just relating to different people um, and, and from a career standpoint, but also from a personal standpoint. It's funny because I always do think of you as one of those people who can be a chameleon in needing to, from our work relationship. So you knew always how to like get what was necessary from leadership to get what was necessary from peers and ways to get buy-in and like help from those who were more junior too. And so I had never put one, two and two together that maybe that was because you had always grown up around a bunch of different people. Well, it's interesting too, because I think I can use it in a way that can be not manipulative, but like persuasive, right? But a euphemism is, oh, I can, I can garner buy-in, right? So I, I'm able to like turn it on and turn it off. Like very much when I was a kid and I wanted to like get over on my parents, I, I had that skill. I'd always thought about it in that way. Like I can be good with this power or I can be bad with this power. And like, when do I want to flex that. So that's definitely something that I think about too. Yeah. After undergrad, I came up to New York. So in undergrad, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I, I had played sports throughout high school and I was on the intramural volleyball team in, in college. So obviously was not good at all. Um, but I knew I loved sport and I knew I loved sort of just like the operations and systems of things and like the business side of things. So um, I learned about a career in sport when I was actually in school. So I was able to get an internship at the NFL Players Association while I was an undergrad and really fell in love with the business of sport. I knew I wanted to just pursue that more. So when I uh, decided to get a master's degree in sport management at Columbia, I, I did it. I just like submitted my application and I was like, I'm just going to go to New York. I don't, I know like one or two people there. I don't have any family there. Um, and I, I went right after undergrad too. So I was sort of like just 22, just ready to sort of start my life. So moved up to New York in 2009 and never looked back. So I've been in, in New York and in Harlem since 2009. And from a career standpoint, you could get an internship alongside going to school. So I was getting my master's at Columbia and I could also get an internship. So I applied blindly to my company and I got the internship. And it was great. Like, I think I learned a lot in the, in the space because I was 
working full time, like a nine to five. And then I was going to school six to nine. So I really sort of learned in that way, like what the sport industry was about, how you had to grind. And obviously like the, the good, the bad gendered things and racist things and things like that, that as a, a person coming in from this very diverse background and thinking that everything is okay. Right. Um, it was a little, you know, frustrating and challenging at some times, you know, that was 12 years ago, almost at this point. And, and into today, I currently still work in sport. I'm now on the marketing side, which is very new, but I'm, I'm learning a lot in this position, learning, uh, learning a lot about myself, what I do want to do, what I don't want to do. I skipped over the part where I got married. So I, I got married in 2018. I had a kid in 2020. It's, it's been, it's been quite a ride. <laughs> I'm so excited to get into what it was like to work in sports because as I'm shaking top of my hat, I'm a big Braves fan. I love sports so much. Someone recently asked me what one of my dream jobs would be. And I feel like that answer changes throughout life. But lately I'm like, my dream job would be like manage a baseball team. And, you know, there's not many women in sports in any sport. And, you know, the Miami Marlins now have a woman who is their manager. I really want to get into what that was like to be a woman working in a predominantly male field. The sport industry, I feel like, has made strides in the diversity and inclusion and equity space. They've made progress, but I don't think that anybody would sit here and say that they are where they need to be. I'm still the only Black woman on, nowadays, the Zoom screen. And this is of like, I'm talking 20, 30 people on a Zoom screen, right? Talking about important initiatives and strategies that, that our company is doing. And I'm the only thing that that's just extremely problematic. And I sometimes, it's funny, I, this week even, I just got really sad, for lack of a better word, because there's so many, there's some open positions available. And we have a huge initiative in our company to like get a diverse slate in and hire diverse talents. But none of that manifests into hiring black women. So I've honestly, I, the, the past couple of weeks have made it my, my mission, my newfound sort of like passion in the DEI space to just attack that challenge. Are we even looking at black women in this space? I think that it's just a missed opportunity in terms of race and gender. I'm, it's just curious to me. Like, I don't know why black women aren't really in sport from, a, from my company standpoint. They're not really present. There's other diverse candidates and, and people that come into the company. But from the Black woman standpoint, I just I recently just noticed that. So it's something that I really want to work on. Working in an environment like that, because we did work at the same place, you then see that it is very much an old white men's club. And people who come in and want to change the game and who want to do things differently, there's a big amount of, there's often a lot of pushback. And so I remember when I was considering leaving and I was looking around and I recognized to myself, because this was, let me back up and say, when I, when Tiff and I worked together, the place we worked was the most diverse place I had ever worked. Now, mind you, I had only come from, I'd worked at Nickelodeon. I had one job. Our team was pretty diverse, but I was the only black woman on the team. And so that was what my upbringing was in a work environment. So then going to the company where Tiffany and I worked, where there are more 
people of color as specifically black people. Some of my really good friends that I've made and some amazing memories and relationships that I had in the workplace were my black colleagues at that workplace. And so I was like, oh, we're like Gucci. I had a new boss. That boss that had started was a black man. I was like, cool. We're like moving in a good direction. And then slowly but surely I noticed, hmm, every person who's gotten laid off recently has been black. Hmm. Every person who has who are my peers, even if they aren't people who are in leadership, who have made choices to leave, have also been Black. And so I think that it's just, what do you think that is, Tiff? Why do you think that that's the situation that it is? Recruitment is the easy part, right? You can sell, oh, our companies, this, our companies, that, yada, yada, yada. And people are like, oh, this is awesome. I want to go to a company that believes in this, that stands for these certain things but it could all be not true. So then when, when people of diverse backgrounds get to said company and they realize that, oh, you sold me something that's just not true, then you leave. So I think it's the like retention tactics or just the culture of the company that just doesn't align with how companies are being sold um, outside to like prospective people. I also think that it's the, the system in and of itself. And I talk about this a lot because, of, you know, especially now in these crazy times that we're experiencing from some social justice challenges, like everybody's talking about the system and the system is broken or no, the system is not broken. It's designed and, and it was supposed to work this way. Right. Like, so that, that is the challenge to me. And even if you hire all diverse people, like literally if they're in that system, the system is still the problem. So even like, I find that when I had diverse leaders, they were still subscribing to the system. So nothing changed. It's not it, like, it's the white supremacist system. You don't have to buy into it because you're white. You could be black and buy into it. You could be, like, you could be any, you know, race and buy into the white supremacist system or culture. And that's just what we know. So I, I'm not blaming the system. I just think that that's just like a factor of doing work in this specific way is like what we value. And if you don't do work in this way or you don't wanna do it this way, then like, hey, you don't really belong here. Like there's no room for difference. And that I think is one of the biggest challenges. It's like the diversity can be there, but if the inclusion's not there, then why am I gonna stay? Can you talk a little bit more about, especially in this climate right now? So this today is April 16th. The video around Adam Toledo shooting just came out, the 13-year-old boy who was in Chicago. Dante Wright was killed two days ago, three days ago. I wouldn't be able to function, I don't think, if I didn't work at a current work environment where not only is Yara there, and she's incredibly supportive to me, but there are other Black leaders at the organization who I can talk to. And my boss, even though that person is a white man, shout out to Mike, he listens to the podcast, he the day the day that the news of the Dante Wright shooting came out, he called me and was like, if you're stressed or if there's anything that you need, if you need to take time, like know that I'm never that you're doing work when there's tragedy happening is not important to me. And so you need to take care of yourself. That is so like mind boggling and so human as a leader. And to know that that's the way that he approaches work and that he knows like, okay, a person was just killed. And so let me just quickly be like, hey, you don't have to work because that's not important right now. The day Brianna Taylor's verdict came out, he texted me, was like, you don't have to work for the rest of the day. I was like, I wasn't going to anyway, but thank you for telling, for giving me permission. 
So hearing that you're the only person of 25 people on the Zoom screen who's a Black woman, like, whoa. Talk a little bit about that, especially in this moment. So I'll go back to the, the racial awakening that the country had with the murder of George Floyd in the summer. And I think back to how I asked my company to respond and show up. And I was met with, we love your passion for this space. We'll, we'll have a meeting like next week. And meanwhile, the world was on fire. So I'm, I'm going back that far and I'm saying that to say, it's, it's sort of a, a survival mechanism for me at this point in my career to not engage with social justice challenges in the world at work. And honestly, like I'm sick to my stomach saying it right now, um, but it's just, it's true. No one's talking about it at work, really. It's like, it's talked about in small clicks. It's not a big company initiative. Bosses aren't going to people saying what your boss is saying, Morgan. It's, it's just not a thing. So much so that, I mean, on the day that, that Dante Wright was murdered, um, the, the, his, the basketball team in that state canceled their game. So I was like making sure that like all my higher ups knew like, hey, just, you know, FYI, the game might be canceled because of this and things like that. And there was like nothing like no one. They were like, OK, cool. Great. Like, thanks for letting us know. There was no, oh, are you doing OK? Not that I need that. Right. I wasn't doing it for that. But there's no sort of like that social emotional connection. Um, it's all about, I think, just the work. So, again, my survival mechanism in being in this space is to sort of like have that straight face and just say, OK, this the world is burning around us. And and there's like blatant racism and violence against black people who look like me and I can't really say anything. And I would add now that I manage a large team. It's also hard for me because I, my team is, I love my team and they're very engaged in like the social justice work. So I have to, on my team meetings, like acknowledge it. But then because I know like I'm a leader, I need to like represent the company. I can't really harp on it. So there's just like, okay, acknowledge it and be sensitive, but then move on. Um, And I've, I have adopted that way of going about it, which again, I'm not, I don't like. Um, but it's sort of just how I have to go about uh, the workspace. It's hard to process those kind of emotions no matter what, but especially when you work in an environment where like a lot of sports teams, or like, let's not even be specific with sports, a lot of companies in America are run by white people who and white men who not only don't understand this because they 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 haven't been in a situation where they have been oppressed, but also they are so entrenched in toxic masculinity, many of them, I don't make assumptions, that even showing emotion that they're feeling is wrong and they don't do it. So, and again, not to like make an excuse for them, but there's just, it, there's so many layers there that are like, just make all of this even more complex and awful. So even you as a leader, you have to adapt to that because that's what's being forced down onto you. And it just creates this cycle. And like, you know, like you were saying before, it's like the system. And it's just one of those things where it wouldn't be the end of the world for people to take a breath and say, something really bad happened. This was traumatic. Let's take a step and breathe. Let's take one day off. One day off in the grand scheme of things is not going to kill any business. But the way corporate America and the corporate world works, it's like, it's like, no, 
Um, but I am really glad that like you are in that space. You can't change everything, but just having your voice and your presence there gives me hope for like the kind of strides we can make. Yeah. And I mean, thanks for saying that. I do though want to be clear. Like I recognize myself as a participant in this system that I was like speaking about earlier. And again, am I proud? Sort of. I got to be real because I figured the game out and I'm like, I'm playing the game. And I, what I want to do with this experience is get the rules, write down the rules and give it to everybody who looks like me. So like, this doesn't have to be a conversation anymore. So like, I really do see my having figured out the game, I think for a little, right, for now, um, as a privilege, because I was the right type of black person to be the only black person in the room. Like I do realize that like, I speak a certain way and I dress a certain way and I, I do this, I do the song, I do the dance. Again, I figured out the game. So like I'm a participant in the system, but I'm trying to use it to help people in the future. That's the goal is to, to be able to help people who look like me. I am in a fellowship program. Uh, and one of the speakers that we had was this woman whose name is Joyce Roche. She's a brilliant. She was, she worked for Avon for 18 years and was an exec there. Then she was the CEO of Girls Inc. She's like brilliant black woman, went to Columbia Business School. It just so happens I learned today because I had a one-on-one with her that she was actually there the same time that my dad was there. And so I was like, I'm sure you didn't know him, but his name was Ed Roper. And she was like, oh my God, of course I knew him. And so it was like a really amazing the conversation had already been great. We just had like a quick one-on-one, like a 30-minute call. And it was already great, but just to add that on top of it was so special. But what she, the advice that she gave on this call that happened today was that she was, she was talking about authenticity. And she said that she had been on a panel, I believe somewhere in Canada. And this woman had written a book basically about how there are three different kinds of self when it comes to the workplace. There's the authentic self, which is you're able to be 100% yourself to keep it 100 and be super honest with the people and the colleagues that you work with. Tiff, you and I had that kind of relationship even in the workplace. The majority of people and the majority of folks that are in a workplace need to be into their adapted self, which I had never heard that phrase before, but she said your adapted self to your point, Tiff, is I know the rules and regulations of how to operate within this space. And as long as I'm not compromising my values, I'm willing to work within the rules of that in order to help those who look like me, in order to succeed and climb the corporate ladder. I'm willing to do all those things, but there's no world in which I'm going to sacrifice my values. That's what it sounds like when you're talking about it, Tiffs, about writing the rules and giving them to the next folks. And she said the third and the worst kind is the performing self, where you're willing to do anything that's required to succeed in that particular system whether that means sacrificing your values and your integrity, you're willing to do it. And she said that the goal and the way that she's been able to succeed and she's on all these corporate boards and she's brilliant and all of that is that she was like, I never let my values be sacrificed. I never moved into the performing self space. And she was like, if something was wrong, I would say something about it. And I'm not going to not say it just because I'm afraid Because she's like, I've learned how to navigate the system. I have adapted to the system. And therefore, I know that I can provide critique of it. 
I don't have to be so afraid that I'm going to get in trouble that I have to pretend like something that unethical or bad is happening at this company is okay. And I thought that was such a powerful way to break that down. I agree. I love that. I've never heard the adaptive self or any of those before too, but yeah, I mean, I think that makes sense. And it makes me think about like the, the, the word code, like the phrase code switch, because I always used to, like people used to say, oh, you're a good code switcher. And I kind of like wore that as a badge of honor. But now I'm looking at it. I'm just like, I don't even know if I'm code switching and just who I am. Like, and, and what code switching from what? Like black people talk differently. Not all black people talk the same. So like, what am I code switching from? And some people who aren't black talk street. So like, some, like I don't, it, you know, it's just like, I don't even know what code switch means anymore in the frame of like, graces are not monolithic. Is that analogy, Morgan, just made me think about that word and how I've like used to wear it as a badge of honor when I talked about my identity. But now I don't say that. I'm just who I am. I talk how I talk. I act how I act. It's just, that's who I am. I feel like people, I mean, code switching is definitely a thing, but people use it a lot on people of color and feel like, oh, you're so good at whatever. You know, people have a phone voice and a normal voice in ways that like everyone has ways where they adapt to where they're around them. And that's great that we're able to do that and that we can embrace who we really are. But I agree sometimes using the phrase code switching, because we only use it for people of color. We don't say this white person is code switching. I appreciate two tips that you are acknowledging the fact that you have adapted to the system in order to be able to succeed. Because I think that that is a really important and honest and frank way to talk about it, because that is what it is. At the end of the day, this is our job. <laughs> so my goal, and I'm sure that your goal is too, and you have a family, so your goal is even bigger than that, is to get that bread. I'm not here. <laughs> Somebody, Ash says all the time, she goes, it's not called show friends, it's called show business. So she's like, you gotta be, that's what you're there for. You're there to be able to succeed. And if that means that you need to, again, without sacrificing your values, like navigate the system in order to succeed, then like you do you. But I think that we've all seen folks who in navigating the system lose, lose their integrity or aren't grounded in values. And maybe that means they're just acting into their performing self. So how do you kind of navigate that, Tiff? Hmm. I mean, that's, that's a good question because as you were talking, I was just like, some people probably are outwardly going against their values, but also some people probably don't have values. And I thought I had values, you know, growing up and into my career, but then I, I was also in a fellowship and I just did like meaningful, intentional work on like what my actual values are. And I have them sort of as like my North star now where I, I do sort of operate in that model. It's always considered. You have to actually do the work to find your values first, because then you will know if you're, you're straying away from them. Such a great point. So what are your values? Do you have them like on post-its or like, how do you break them down? They're not like revolutionary. Um, but essentially when I did it, it was like, they kind of gave us like a, a list of possible values. And then obviously you can like kind of put your own in there, but mine is family. And this was also before I had like a, my, my intimate family. I don't know what you call it, your immediate family. Like now I have a kid and a husband, but family was always there. Mom, dad, sister, friends who are family. Oh, that's always being considered when I'm moving forward with something. Ethics is in there too. Um, I always try to be ethical. So Tiff, take us back. 
What was it like growing up in Virginia Beach? What did your friend group look like? Tell us more about that and how that kind of grounded you in who you are. I adored Virginia Beach. Um, I, I realize and retrospect everything that it gave me. But I will say that I knew, I, I understood the importance of academics at an early age. And it's interesting because I don't think my parents necessarily instilled that in me. My parents were amazing. Shout out to Robert and Emily. They've been married for like 38 years. They, I'm the youngest of three girls. So like they, for by all intents and purposes, like they are the perfect parents. But I would say they were perfect in that they sheltered me a lot. And I wasn't exposed to a lot of the like realness of the world through them. I would experience it on my own and then sort of have to like, then go home and like research it and like think through it on my own and things like that. So saying that, because I I feel like a lot of the, um, the challenges that I went through or like just things that happened to me that I couldn't really process or understand when I was a kid, I actually just internalize them. Like I didn't really talk about them when I was growing up. So my friend group was very diverse. Like I remember friend, like one of my best friends um, growing up was Filipino. My, my next door neighbor was a white girl named Tatum. And we were really close. Like we hung out all the time. And then growing, going into high school, I got sort of more in with the, the black community in my school, but not without, you know, going through some challenges. So like one distinct memory that I have is being in fourth grade. And at that time, again, I just explained my, my, my friend group there, they were, maybe they, I didn't hang out with all of the black people, but I don't think black, the black kids in the school hated me at the time. I just didn't really hang out with them, but I had hung out with a lot of white kids just to, let me just put it blunt. I hung out with a lot of white kids. And was called the the Oreo all the time and all that stuff. But one distinct instance that that has stuck with me for a really long time is I was in fourth grade, teacher had asked for the answer to a question and I raised my hand and gave the correct answer. And in front of everybody, like 25, 30 kids in the class, this kid, black kid named Nigel, never forget, said, oh, Tiffany, stop acting white. And again, I was in fourth grade, so I had heard it before. But for some reason, him saying it in front of everybody, it was just very, it was frustrating, right? But back then, I would just remember being like, this doesn't make sense to me. How am I acting white? Because I answered a question, right? I look back and I'm like, oh, I was, I was pretty ahead of my time, right? I didn't like take it like as an insult. I was actually just perplexed by like, how is, why is he saying this? And obviously the teacher made a big deal out of it, which I don't know if that was probably right of her. She was like, oh my God, Nigel you got to apologize to Tiffany right now in front of everybody. Like, was that the right way to do that? Probably not. He apologized. I cried and I ran out of the classroom. Was your teacher white? Of course. <laughs> I'm sorry that young Tiffany got called an Oreo. What do you, why do you think it made you cry? Since even at the time you were, and you were a little kid, but even at the time you were like, I'm not acting white. I'm being myself, being smarter than you, Nigel. I don't know. I think it was the fact that I, I knew that when people said that it was like, they were meant to be an insult. So I think that being humiliated in front of all my peers was just like that, that tipping point. That was one, that just one instance that like stands out in my mind to this very day and moving on into even high school, like with all like the AP classes and honors classes, like I was in some of those. And I remember being like, one of maybe two or three black people, people of color 
in those spaces. While I love Virginia and it was diverse, it was diverse in a like segmented way where it's like, yeah, you see all the people, but like, were they co-mingling? Not really. That situation sort of just like frames a lot of how I think about the world today. You mentioned your dad was in the Navy. Um, When I was a kid, especially in high school, I was super weird and I watched a bunch of NCIS and there was a hot second where I wanted to be in the Navy or be in Naval Intelligence. And clearly that didn't happen. Clearly I would not have survived any sort of boot camp or any sort of regiment because that is, I think anyone who knows me knows my anxiety levels would not allow for that. But because you saw your dad doing that, was there ever a time where you or your siblings wanted that as well? It wasn't a conversation for me growing up. Like I'd always seen that and been like, okay, that's cool. It's just not for me. And I, again, attack my life in that way where I, I like the process of elimination. Like I can, that's why I try anything. And I try everything, even from like career to like sports to food. Like I try stuff and I determine if I want it in my life or not. So I had seen military and just like knew that it just wasn't for me. But um, my sisters both did ROTC in high school. And my eldest sister loved it so much. She actually went into the Marine. She was, she's a Marine veteran right now. She got out a couple of years ago. Every single sister brother that my mom has, she's the oldest of seven, was in the armed forces, Navy or Army or Marines. And grandpas were in there. So anyways, yes, huge family of military um, personnel, but I never wanted to do that. Up until a couple of years ago, I was like, should I just go into the arms of the, the Navy or the army or some armed forces and like be an officer? Cause we have a college degree. You can go in at a, you don't have to do basic training. You can just be an officer because I learned that I really like like operations of things. So I was like, Oh, that's one way I can sort of like scratch that itch. But then I read that you have to be um, younger than 34 years old in order to like do that. And I am not. So <laughs> My, my ship has sailed, but I do, I respect the hell out of the military. It's, it's an important part of my life. I'm just curious, you know, we've talked a lot about um, patriotism. I think the idea of patriotism has been perverted in this country. And, you know, you have people saying kneeling during the national anthem is, is unpatriotic. The, the, the promises of this country have never been guaranteed to people of color, particularly black people. And so I'm curious to know like kind of how you view patriotism, how you can kind of balance that with like the atrocities this country has committed. That's such a great question, Yara. And it's so patriotism. So I'd never would call myself a patriot, but I don't think I'm actively against it either. I would say that I I would define a patriot as someone who's just like blindly loyal to their country. And I'm not that, nor are people that I know who are in the military. So I also don't think that being in the military is synonymous with patriotism. I think you could also be, you could be a patriot and not be in the military too, right? Or consider yourself a, a devout patriot. But to me, it's just like, what are you pledging allegiance to. I feel like I I want to pledge allegiance to something more fruitful, like something more like a belief. 
versus just a country, just like a thing, an object that stand that's supposed to stand for something, but doesn't actually like manifest in that way. I'd rather pledge my allegiance or like believe wholly in ideals and values and things like that. And I don't think that that's reflected in the, the country right now. So I would, I wouldn't say that I identify as a patriot in that way. But I also, it's interesting. I read this article, I can't remember where, but where this, a black veteran was talking about why he had an American flag on his porch. Because I think with the, you know, with everything people, I think with Colin Kaepernick, it started where, you know, black people were like turning their back on the flag and things like that. They're going, oh, I don't care about this country. And he was just like, this, but this is my country. Like my people built this country. So like, of course I'm patriotic. Of course I'm going to have the flag. Like this is mine. So I also think about that a lot too, where that's in the back of my mind where it's like, yeah, that's re- that's true. Like my, my ancestors were brought here forcefully and, and forced to, to, to build up this country to what it is today. So I wrestle with that a lot. That's, that's why it's a, such a good question, Yara. Like, I, I don't know the answer to, right? Because it's, it's like, sometimes I, I do want to say like, I am patriotic and I, because it's mine, but in some ways I know it's really not. So I don't want to claim it. There's a tension there. People have hijacked that word and turned patriotism into something that I personally think it shouldn't. It, it, you're right. It has become blind loyalty to like, it, it has become nationalism, which is dangerous. We've seen in history how dangerous nationalism is. My definition of like being an American love country is very different than what this perverted, blind, patriotic, whatever is. I would also say just being the youngest of three girls and just being in a house full of women with one man also really shaped who I am. So much so that like, again, not something I'm proud of, but like I like voted for Hillary over Obama in the primaries in 08 because I was like, I'm a woman first and I'm black second. I was so stupid. I was just like a rebel without a cause. Now I think I'm a rebel with a cause. So that's like my, my badge of honor now. That is so funny because my immediate response would be like, this Oreo over here. (laughs) So I was like, girl, you black first and then you're a woman. That's a very interesting conversation. Let's have that right now. When I'm describing myself, the first thing I say about myself is that I'm black and that I'm a woman. And of course, everything is intersectional. I can't divorce the fact that I'm a woman from the fact that I'm black. Those things are so connected. But I just think that's such an interesting thing that you brought up, Tiffs, of like, what do you view yourself as first? What are your thoughts about that now? Like you said then that you said, I'm a woman first and then I'm Black, even though they're all connected. But what do you think? Yeah, so I do now believe that identity is fluid. So today I say Black first. I'm like, I'm a Black woman. We can go into this a little later, but I, I haven't added the mother identifier to my title yet. And my daughter, for the listeners, is 14 months old. So she's old. She's a toddler out here. And something in me is just not ready to convert my identity to mother yet. Although I love her. She's amazing. And she's, yeah, she's incredible. It's just like not a part of my identity now. But because I view identity as fluid, I'm going to add it when I feel comfortable. I'll add it later. But not that I'm hiding her or anything. Like I'll just say I'm a Black woman from Virginia. I live in Harlem. Bam. That's it. 
And then somebody asked me like, what else do I do? Like, yes, of course, Rory, my daughter's going to come up in conversation, but it's just not like an outward identifier that I use right now. That's so interesting too, because, because we've interviewed, we've interviewed a few moms on the show and I didn't even think about that, but that that's, that is often what those women have said that they were like, first and foremost, I'm a mom or like, I'm a this, I'm a this, and I'm a mom. And a lot of my friends have kids and I've met Rory and she's an absolute angel. And we have a picture together. I was like, is it weird if I make that my phone background? (laughs) I love Rory. It's just interesting seeing different people, the way that they kind of grow into their identity as a mom. And so can you tell us a little bit more about that? I didn't want to have kids up until like five years ago. And when I got married, my husband also wasn't like pushing it either. He's just, he's amazing. We were on the same page and we were like, okay, cool. Maybe, maybe we'll have kids. Maybe we won't. And we sort of talked about what that could look like. So it just had never been a real part of how I saw myself as an adult. So I think that's the first piece. Then we get married and we're just like, actually like we're, we're decent people. If we had one more of us, the world wouldn't be shitty. Right. (laughs) Um, so we decided to have a a kid and Rory was born in January of 2020. The fact that it's just like, so instant maybe was a challenge for me because like, Hey, I could say I'm a college grad, but being a college grad, I had to do that over time. So like I had a chance to like lean into it a little more. If I'm being honest, being a rebel with a cause is still my identity too. So I don't want to be like the traditional, again, this is that kind of thing, traditional working mom. I kind of wanted to say, sure, I have a child, but I'm still who I am. I'm still like, still call me at five o'clock for meetings. There was a couple of instances over the past 14 months where I was like excluded from meetings because they were like, well, you have a kid. I didn't know if you wanted a six o'clock meeting, but I'm like, well, let me make that choice. I associate, unfortunately, some of the negative pieces with being a mom with outwardly saying it. And I I need, that's an internal, that's a challenge, right? That I'm I'm working and practicing every day to like get over. And I, I, I am proud, obviously, to be a mom. I just am not ready to make it a, a, a huge, a center, an integral piece of like who I am outwardly to the world. I think too, that the way that our culture wants women to be a mom and have that be the end of the sentence and that that's what you were put here to do. So go do that. And then you are, then you will have achieved almost being a woman. Like that's what being a woman is, is being a mom. And so I think that to your like general contrarian rebel with the cause spirit that you are grounded in the knowledge that your identity came first before you had this kid and that Rory is a huge part of who you are, but Rory isn't who you are. And I really love that. And I, if I'm so lucky to have a kid of my own, I hope that I'm able to do what you've been able to do in like acknowledging and being honest. Like I know you so well, you're like, I'm going to be the COO of a company, Fortune 500s. And like, I'm going to do that. So like, Rory, if you need to come and like chill with me at my office, then that's what you're going to have to do. You're a career woman. As a woman who was raised by a career woman, Rory's so blessed that that's what she's going to have to look up to. And if Rory decides that when she has a family that she wants to stay home, cool. But she'll be like, but I know what it is to be a boss. And I know what it is to, because I've seen my mom do it. And I also think regardless of like your choices, or Rory's, it teaches Rory 
that you can do what you want. You can follow your dreams and whatever your dream is, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what the person does. It's like, you're doing what's right for you. If you were chosen to stay home, great. Rory would see that you're doing that. Either way, it's like showing your kids that you do what's right for you and you do what's true to your heart in line with your values and your ethics. And I think that's the most important thing you can teach your kids because that gives them the confidence to do things the way they want to do things. I totally agree. So you mentioned that you're married. Can you tell us how you guys met, a little bit about him? It's not that long or romantic of a story. Duncan and I met at a house party in Brooklyn about, gosh, maybe eight years ago. And we met there. He saw me, he says, from across the room and got me a a red cup drink. And we talked the entire night. I had no idea that he was interested in me like in like a romantic way. I thought he was just like making a friend at a party. We were just going to talk. And then that was literally it. But at the end of the night, when we were just like trying to go home, he asked for my number. And in my head, I was like, oh my gosh, this is what this is. I thought we were just friends, but cool. He's like interested in me. And honestly, the reason I thought he wasn't interested in me was because he was, he is white. And I honestly was just like, okay, it's just like this white guy. He's going to be my new cool, like hipster friend from Brooklyn. Great. But <laughs> it ends up being a guy who was interested in me. And I was, again, we had a really good conversation. So we went out on a date the next week and the week after that, and the week after that. And then it just um, escalated into a relationship and then a marriage. And we've been married since 2018. I was at Tiff and Duncan's wedding. It was beautiful. It was so fun. It torrentially downpoured, but then it stopped. Tiff was having a small meltdown, but then it stopped and there was a double rainbow and it was gorgeous and it was perfect. It was so beautiful in Vermont. And I remember Tiff in planning and leading up to planning the wedding. She was like, I need to figure out what that we're going to do about seating because Every single one of my friends is black. Duncan's my only white friend. And so if it's his friends all on one side and my friends all on the other side, it's going to be segregated down the middle. So I want to talk a little bit more about that. Because clearly, Tiff, like you said, you're like, I can't, he can't possibly be interested in me. He's white. My assumption is that you hadn't dated a white guy before. Well, I actually have dated a white guy before, but it was in high school and it doesn't really count because it was probably just like a two-week relationship. It was fun. I forget what the guy's name is at this point, but yes, he was he was white. Dating for me has been um, a journey, I think, as it has for most people in the world. Race was definitely something I thought about in dating, but didn't really pay too much attention to. Like, I wasn't only attracted to Black guys. I was always open to diverse guys. I've been the like, this is so weird to say, like the exclusion to people's rules. Sometimes like, you know how sometimes the like, I hate this, but guys are like, I only date light-skinned girls or like the girl, the guys, you know, who only date light-skinned girls. I would sometimes date those guys. I'm not light-skinned at all. They only date light-skinned girls and me. So like, does that make me something else? I think I struggled a lot with my having felt that as I got older and like more mature, quite frankly, and smarter. I was just like, yuck. So you, at the beginning, Tiffs, thought that you were the exception to Duncan's role, that maybe he hadn't dated Black women or something? Yeah, it was interesting. I think when we first met, I was just like, okay, like, are you into me because I'm Black? 
Or are you into me because I'm a good person and we vibe and things like that? But obviously over time, I learned that it was the latter. I'm a good person and vibe. So, um, Andrew Black. (laughs) Because Duncan is white and you are Black, that means Rory is biracial. How have you and Duncan talked about what you want to teach her about her identity or how you want to kind of frame those things for her? Yeah, so it's been very interesting, involved conversations um, that are always just like important to have. So we're, we're, we're blessed to be able to have those conversations and be open and honest with each other. But it is interesting because Morgan, you actually told me this, like when there's a bi, generally sometimes when there's a biracial kid, they take after the, the race of their same gendered parent. So because I have a daughter potentially she has a more likelihood of like identifying as black because her mom, her same gender is black. And I think about that a lot actually, because she also has very fair skin and the, I, the challenges that I know she will or will not face. I have no idea about because I've not, I don't look like her and I'm not biracial. So I always thought when I, when I decided to have a kid a couple of years ago, I always, I was just like, yeah, sure. Like Duncan's white, but like, she's going to look mixed. Like she's going to look like me a little, just a little light skinned version of me, but no, like we got to share a picture of her on the, on the Instagram, but um, she looks, she's very fair. And I just beat my concern. And what I talk, what Duncan and I talk about is that we don't have experience, real life experience to be able to help her through the challenges that she faces, that she will face. Because her challenges are going to be very different than mine and very different from Duncan's, obviously. So when we're talking about identity, it's more so like, how can we expose her to every single part of her identity? I think Duncan's families is very proud of their background. They're Scott Irish. I, um, I love being a Black person. I just did my uh, 23andMe, my in my DNA test, and I found out that I'm like 79% Nigerian. So I really want to learn more about that. And I'm once I do, I'm excited to like share that with Rory as well, so she can like know that part of her history too. But to get back to your question, Morgan, like when we talk about her being biracial and and that her place in the world, it's it's a hard conversation because we we just don't know right now all the tools and resources that she's going to need in order to help her feel accepted in the world. So I'm just doing a lot of listening and learning about biracial children's experiences so that I can point her in the right direction. I just finished reading Black Magic by Chad Sanders and um, a friend of the pod was on there she has a biracial daughter as well. And she talked about how she wants to really like teach her daughter different parts of who she is and things like that too. So anyways, I'm just like trying to just pull different information from friends, right? From podcasts, from everything, just so I can like arm Rory with the right information going into it, knowing that we're just going to have very different experiences. It's hard. It's really hard because Black people are the best, but we're also very, you're either with us or you're against us. And I think that that makes being a biracial person really hard because then Black people are like, prove to me 
that you are with us and you're not with them, but it's like, it's not them. That's my dad. Like I, I am, I'm both. What I'm hopeful for, for Rory, for Dre's daughter, Zemi, Rory will know that Kamala is half black, half Indian. And she'll know, oh, I'm half. I even watch, I'm home now visiting my mom. When we watch TV, so many commercials now will have a black mom and a white dad. And when we were little, like you'd only see same same race couples together. So I, I'm hopeful that the culture will be more accepting of Rory's bothness. Morgan, you were saying that, you know, you're either with us or against us. I think that's true of a lot of different racial communities as well, just because it's always a conversation of, oh, am I Indian enough? Oh, am I Muslim enough? It's so true that no matter what, it's like identity is fluid. We should be able to like take our parts and be ourselves. But I feel like that also puts so much pressure on identity is that you feel like you have to choose, but you don't. I'm also hopeful the more mixed, like the more biracial children there are, the more we're going to be able to embrace this. And like maybe 50 years from now, this won't even be a conversation. And the white supremacist patriarchy ain't going to let that happen in 50 years, but sure you are. In a thousand years when the earth doesn't exist because of global warming, <laughs> they'll be like, what was race? <laughs> but Yaro, yeah, when you're talking about a person having to choose That to me is the underlying challenge because even if, hey, we do have all these like multi-culti babies running around, like I still don't think that's the answer. I feel like we we as a society just have to get out of having everything be in these perfect individual boxes so we can compartmentalize them in our head to say, oh, I need to know if you're white or not because I need to know if what I'm about to say is going to offend you or not or whatever that is, you know? So I just want, I this think it's like an evolution that we need to get to as a full culture, like worldwide. This is not an American challenge. Obviously, it's a huge challenge across the globe because people just want to be able to to point out the difference so that they can say, oh, I'm, I'm better than this person or this person is below me or something like that. Tiff, this has been such an awesome conversation. It the time flew by. I love talking to you always, but it's been so special to talk to you in this way and to get to know more about your story than even I already knew since we're already great friends. So thank you so much for being here and thank you for being so honest and open and vulnerable. It was great. Great job. Thank you so much for having me. This has been incredible. I love talking with you ladies. So insightful, so thoughtful, so smart. Just thank you for for even creating this podcast. It's been really incredible for me to listen to during the whole pandemic. So thank you for that. Tiff, as a regular listener of the podcast, you know, coming up, we have what is bringing us joy and zaddies. So I'm actually going to add one note to that today. Um, So I want to ask you, what you're doing right now to bring you joy, but also a way you're practicing self-care because it's been a rough week. Um, I mean, it's been a rough year, but particularly this week has been very rough. So I'd love to know how you're bringing yourself joy or what's bringing you joy and self-care because I think there is a difference between those two. I love the addition. So I'm going to start with self-care first because it's, it's easy for me. I watched one episode of Parks and Rec every night. That is one of my favorite shows. And it just, it brings me, 
just it's self-care for me because after a long stressful day compounded with frustrating tragic news it's just you just want to laugh and not worry or think about anything and I love Parks and Rec so much I've seen every single episode over and over and over again so I know what's coming but it's always just funny and it just makes me just like a sigh I'm just okay Yep, the day was crazy and it's I'm I'm sad sometimes because of what's going on, but like this little thir- 29 minute um next 29 minutes just really uh is my self-care moment. I love that because for me, I the nanny was recently added to HBO um and I watch an episode of the nanny or Frasier every night before I go to bed and I'll tell you Morgan knows this and some listeners know this too, I had to tweet at and um, email HBO because they had the nanny episodes out of order. And I was appalled. And it wasn't just one or two. It was um, like five or six. And I was so mad. And they were important episodes out of order. So I did like a, a five thread tweet. And I was like, these are the episodes. Please do something about this. I never heard back, but it's fixed. So if anyone's going to watch The Nanny on HBO, know that because of me, you can now watch it in order. Yara texted me and our other friend and was like, guys, there's been an atrocity. We were like, oh my God, what happened? The Nanny episodes are out of order. We were like, Yara, why don't you tweet at them, like joking and trolling? And then she did it. That's amazing because you're a super fan. Like you, how did you even know? That's, that's amazing. And then what's bringing me joy these days is Audible. So I got Audible, Audible uh, subscription for Christmas and I've been loving it. I was, I was always one of those people who were like, no, I want to feel the pages in my hands and blah, 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 blah. And then I had a kid and got a stressful job and I'm just like, I don't even have time to do that. So I've listened to a lot of um, great books on Audible. The most recent one I was talking about was Black Magic by Chad Sanders. And that was incredible. I loved listening to it. And I love when the writer is the, the reader as well. Like for Barack Obama's book, uh, A Promised Land, he was. And I was just like, mm, I just love listening to his voice. And he's so smart. And the book was so good. So Audible is bringing me so much joy right now. Awesome. Now I'm going to give you a tip, which is there is another company called Libro and that allows you to download audiobooks, but then you're not supporting Jeff Bezos. So I'll hit you with that in the, in the sidelines. So you can continue to be a social justice warrior and listen to your audiobooks. <laughs> Thank you so much for that because I only got the six month subscription. So it's coming to an end. So it's perfect. Perfect. And now talking about Barack Obama and a promised land is a perfect segue into the most important part of the show, which is the Zaddy Chat. So for any listeners who have not listened yet, this is the portion of the episode where we discuss the people that we are crushing on. So Tiffy, as our guest, you can go first. Tell us who is your Zaddy of the Week? So my Zaddy of the Week is Alexander Lacazette. So he is a a soccer player. He plays for Arsenal in the English Premier League. I'm not a soccer fan at all, but my husband is. So I watch soccer. I'm like forced to watch soccer games all the time. But he's not only is he fine in real life, 
recently he just um so a lot of the soccer players are kneeling during the national like the anthems and things like that um but they played a team from Prague or the Czech Republic or I forget where it is they, they played a team that they were m- mainly white men who did not kneel so Lacazette went right up to them and kneeled right in front of them so that just was like ooh just like put the stamp on being a zaddy just being about the people and just being hot while doing it. He's also a good soccer player, I think, I guess, whatever. Who cares? He's a zaddy. Triple threat, zaddy, social justice warrior, good soccer player. I just Googled him. He's very attractive, so good choice. This week, my zaddy of the week is Alicia Keys. She is gorgeous. That part's very clear. And a couple years ago, I watched her on The Voice, and that was when she was in her phase of not wearing makeup, though she has perfect skin, so it'd be easy for me to not wear makeup if I had perfect skin and millions of dollars as well. But she has this calm, zen energy and very, like, earth mama, hippy-dippy vibes, and I just like that. Yara, who's yours? I feel like I have a few definitions on what a zaddy is. This person is not the person I'm necessarily crushing on this week. This is just someone who I like, I think has a great vibe. And I would agree that some of his policies have been problematic. And I won't agree with everything that he did. But I'm going to say Colin Powell is my zaddy of the week. You know, I was thinking about him because Slow Burn is coming out with a new podcast about the Iraq War. And while Colin Powell is conservative... I give him a pass because I think he's one of the ones that stepped away from Trump and like he he's not a toxic conservative. And so I pick Colin Powell as my zaddy of the week. All right. Well, Tiffany, it was such a joy to talk to you today. What an amazing conversation. Thank you so much for sharing about all of your experiences, about being a working woman, about navigating all the craziness of the white supremacist patriarchal (laughs) corporate America structure. And it was so great to talk to you. And I am so glad that despite not working together, despite a pandemic, despite all of that, that I feel like we've become even closer friends over the course of the past year since I haven't even worked with you and seen you every day. So I love you. I'm so grateful to you for coming on and thank you for being here. Thank you ladies for having me. This has been so fun. The time flew by. Your again your your questions are so thoughtful. This is this is what's needed right now in the world, right? It's just like talking and like getting it out there and being vulnerable and like sharing resources and tools to just help people just get by. And uh this again this podcast has been really important to me and I'm so proud that you guys have like done it and stuck with it and it's been really cool so thank you for having me it's been amazing to be here I am so honored to have met you and I am so excited for everyone to hear this episode because your story is amazing and I think everyone will love it so love storyers don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at LSMY Podcast leave us a review rate us subscribe do all those things and share with your friends. And don't forget, we have a Spotify playlist where we put all of the songs that are bringing us joy. So Tiff will give us her four songs that are giving us joy that particular week. Me and Yara will do the same. And so it's a really fun playlist and you guys should listen to that as well. All right, everybody. Thank you. And we'll see you on the flip side. Bye friends. Bye.